All right, gang, if you brought your Bible, I want you to open it to John chapter 6, if you would, please. Turn to John's Gospel, the sixth chapter. Remember the very first time when we opened up this series, I kept referencing John 6 during the message, and I thought, well, we won't get there today, but we'll get there next week, and then the second week rolled around, well, we'll get there the third week. Well, finally, in the last of our six-part series, we're going to read from John's Gospel and the sixth chapter. You're probably familiar with the feeding of the 5,000 with a little boy's lunch, five loaves and two fish. Now today, as evidenced by the title, we're going to ask a very telling question. Really, it's a question that we've been asking all series long in just different ways. On a very basic and fundamental level, I want to know today if in your mind Jesus is... Enough. So we wrap up our series called Not a Fan with this question, is Jesus enough for you? The big statement that I put in the program is this, yes, he's enough for followers, but not necessarily for fans. Think about that big goal you're working toward. If that doesn't work out, is Jesus enough for you? Think about the hopes you have for your relationship. Should that fall apart? Let me ask you a question. Is Jesus enough for you? If things don't go as well as you would like in your business or in your family or in your personal finances or in this community, building a new home, buying a new car, whatever it is, if it doesn't work out, is Jesus enough for you? Followers would say yes. Fans, not necessarily. Now, the reason this subject, I think, is so relevant, the reason it's so germane, the reason... We wanted to put this before you six weeks in a row is because we all live very hurried, busied, distracted lives. It doesn't matter what survey you read in the United States of America in 2019, the idea or subject of busyness bubbles to the surface. We're all too busy and we all know it. If you don't know you're too busy, if you don't know you live distracted lives, I'll bet you can point to somebody else and claim that they do. It's something we see in others more quickly than perhaps we see it in ourselves. I believe it is one of the tools of our enemy, one of his best, sharpest, most effective tools to keep us from examining eternal issues, matters of significance that will last forever, to keep us from that, he distracts us with the day-to-day -day pursuits, the day-to-day -day problems, the day-to-day -day issues. And many of these are good things, as we'll examine in a moment. When we get to John chapter 6, the question Jesus asks the crowd is, am I enough? Am I enough? Now, you probably, again, know the story. Jesus is at the height of his popularity in John chapter 6. You realize Jesus only had a three-year ministry? Three years. When he was 30, he entered into what we often refer to as the year of obscurity. That very first year, that's when he was baptized. That's when he was tempted in the desert. That's when he gathered his closest followers, the disciples. The second year, he's 31, 32 years old. We call that the year of popularity because his teachings were unlike any other rabbi. People came from miles around and they came by the thousands. He was soaring in popularity he performed miracles and signs, and the inspirational teaching caused throngs of people to gather around him. But then the final year is what we call the year of opposition, when the opposition to Jesus from the Pharisees began to mount, and they eventually crucified him. John chapter 6 takes place during that year of popularity. Word's gotten out that the uh, 
the healer, the miracle worker, the teacher has come to town. And so people gathered and they gathered by the thousands and Jesus taught all day long. He communicated, he inspired, he encouraged, he instructed. At the end of the day, everybody was hungry. So Jesus looks at his disciples and said, you give him something to eat. Philip, one of his followers said, it would take a half a year's wages just to buy enough bread for them to have one bite apiece. We don't know how to feed these people. And by the way, the text says there were 5,000 men. The number was probably upwards of 15,000 people Jesus miraculously fed that day with one little boy's lunch. Well, guess what happens after, after supper? Jesus decides to disappear. The crowd decides we're going to camp out. We're going to sleep under the stars because I'm interested to see what he'll do in the morning. They had their bellies full. They probably built campfires, and they literally slept outside. Meanwhile, Jesus and the disciples, they go across the lake. That's when, early in the chapter, that's when Jesus walks on the water and calms the storm. But in the morning, the crowd wakes up. It's already late. They can't find Jesus. They didn't get an opportunity to put in their breakfast menu order. So they're searching for Jesus. They realize he's gone across the lake. By the time they get around there, it's already lunch or after. Now the people are starving. And in that moment, when they find Jesus, Jesus confronts them. Because what Jesus wants them to understand is there are more important things than your next meal. Jesus wants them to understand that there's something more important than what is temporal. Jesus wants to know if he is enough for them. Let's pick up the story in John chapter 6. Now, I'm going to read a lot of this, and I'm going to highlight parts of the text, and I want to explain to you what's exactly going on here, because John chapter 6 begs the question, and I'm asking it to you today, is Jesus enough for you? Look at verse 25. Remember, this is the next day. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Rabbi, a, a term of respect, not necessarily a term of endearment or intimacy like Jonathan pointed out a few weeks ago. Rabbi, teacher, when did you get here? I mean, what's the big idea? We're starving. You fed us last night. We assumed you'd feed us again this morning. We don't want to miss a thing. Watch this. Jesus answered, verse 26, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed. In other words, not because you believe I am who I claim to be. Not because you knew I who I am in reference to the Father. Not because I'm enough for you. You're looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. Now, church, please don't miss this. Everything about this message, everything about this idea, everything about this series is built on this moment. Jesus wants to know if he's enough for the crowds, and today I want to know if he's enough for you. Verse 27, don't work for food that spoils. Don't expend all your energy, all your worry, all your time, your priority, your sense of urgency, don't burn it all up for something that's temporary, food that spoils. By the way, food is good. It's necessary, but it's not eternal. And the rub in this passage, as your pastor, I will admit, I like things that spoil. 
I like my Hummer. I like my motorcycle. I like the barn we just built. I like my tractor. I like my vacations. But in light of what Jesus is teaching in John chapter 6, those things will all pass away. Those things will all eventually spoil. One day I won't own any of them. Someone else will. They'll either be given away, sold, destroyed somehow, but they will not last for eternity. So Jesus says, don't burn up all your effort, all your intention, all your energy, all your priority, all your goals. Don't burn it all up for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, for which the Son of Man gave you, for on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Remember Jesus said in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 4 when he was tempted of the enemy, he said, man and woman cannot live by bread alone. It's necessary, it's important, I'll grant you that, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, why? Because that's eternal, that's everlasting. Keep reading. Verse 28, they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Now remember, this is primarily a Jewish audience. And according to Judaism, by the way, church, like every other world religion, I bring this to your attention quite often because it's one of the distinguishing characteristics of Christianity. Every other world religion from Islam to Judaism, if you're a Sikh, if you're a Hindu, even the New Age movement and teaching of reincarnation, they're all built on the subject of works. Your security with God forever and ever, according to every other world religion, is based upon what you can work out in your own life, how you perform, how you produce for God, but not Christianity. So the Jews ask a question that most Jews would ask. What are the works we must do to gain God's approval. Notice it's plural. What are the works? They were probably as busy and hurried and distracted as we'll ever be. Maybe a little less, given the time and the culture. Nonetheless, what they're asking is, give us a, a broad spectrum of the things we might do, the, 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 the hand-picked ideas works that we might choose to add to our already busy, hectic schedules will make it convenient for us, will make it comfortable in our faith that we might gain eternal life. Tell us the works God requires. Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Jesus said, unlike any other world religion, it's not the work, it's the faith. Now, don't misunderstand, we've already established, if the faith is authentic, the work will be self-denial and cross-bearing. If the faith is genuine, the work that follows will be self-denial and cross-bearing. And church, I don't want to get any more specific than that. You see, I don't stand up here on Sundays, nor does Jonathan or anyone else, and say, if your faith is authentic, you should do this. And if your faith is authentic, you should do that. And if your faith is authentic, here's a third one for you to think about. That would be known or called legalism. Legalism says, if your faith's authentic, you have to do what I do, generally, A, B, C, and D. 
Jesus said very simply in Mark chapter 8 and other places, if your faith is authentic, you will deny your own self-sovereignty, you will take up your cross, and you will follow me. So the work of God is to believe. You're not saved by the works. You don't guarantee heaven by how you perform in this life. You guarantee heaven by what you believe. And if that belief and that faith is authentic, then the works of self-denial and cross-bearing are sure to follow. Verse 30, so they asked him, what sign then will you give us that we may see it and believe in you? What will you do? Remember three weeks ago, we examined 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 22. Paul said, the Jews are all about the signs. They're all about connecting the dots. They're all about seeing so they might believe. And yet the order of God is always exactly the opposite. You see, the fans must see to believe, but the order of God is, no, you believe first, you see second. We want to see so we can believe, and that's understandable. That's part of our human condition. That's why things like logic and information sometimes matter more to us than faith. But God's order, God's way is always to believe first, to aim your faith and go, to trust first, and then see second. Keep reading. What sign will you give us that we may see it and, dis- and believe you? What will you do? Oh, this is so typical. This is so typical of us. What sign are you going to give us that will relieve our doubt, that will calm our anxiety, that will answer our questions? Come on, Jesus. What are you going to do? We choose to live lives that are busied, hurried, distracted. And then when we need him... We expect him to show up. What are you going to do, God? I'm in a tight spot here. What are you going to do, Jesus? That's what they were doing. Verse 31. Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, you probably know this story. It's the story of the Exodus in the Old Testament. Moses led the children of Israel to the promised land, but it took 40 years to do so, and God sustained them in the desert with manna from heaven. They're saying, look, that's the sign Moses gave us. And by the way, if you consider yourself greater than Moses, you better do something better than Moses. Moses fed us for 40 years. You fed us last night. Moses gave us manna, bread from heaven. Keep reading. Verse 32, Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven. It is my father who gives you the true bread, referring to himself from heaven. Verse 33, for the bread of God, he's talking about himself, is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Moses gave you bread, put food in your stomachs. And while that's important, it's not eternal. It's food that spoils. I'm interested, Jesus wants to know, in the bread of God. Later you'll see the bread of life. They said, sir, sir, always give us this bread. Always. They've yet to understand that he's talking about himself. Then Jesus says in verse 35, Jesus declared, I am the bread. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. In saying this, church, Jesus is saying, I'm enough. I'm enough. That leads me to 
makes several observations. Here's the first. When every other option is gone, that's when you find out if Jesus is enough. You see, when there are no other options left on the table, when the buffet is closed, there's no other option, that's when you find out if Jesus is enough. This whole experience in John chapter 6 demonstrates, and I'll show you this in a moment, that for a large, significant portion of the crowd, the fans, Jesus wasn't enough. They needed Jesus and a miraculous meal. They needed Jesus and an answer to prayer. They needed Jesus and sustenance for the days ahead. They needed Jesus and a sign for them to believe. I wish I could tell you all the stories over the years that we have been privileged to witness at this church. For more than 20 years now, we've been watching fans become followers. I could tell you some of the stories, but I couldn't get too specific because believe it or not, some of the people I'm about to talk about are in this room. I can change the names maybe and tweak the scenarios so you know, you're not poking each other. Hey, that's him. I could tell you about a guy we'll call James. James was a big-time executive. James had one of those half-a-million-dollar-a-year jobs with stock options and buyout potential. He was a vice president of a large company. He sat on the board of directors. But at some point, litigation overwhelmed this successful company, and the business began to spiral. At some point, the board members began to disappear because of the threat of lawsuits. They began to just, just disappear. But he thought to himself, the right thing to do here is to right this ship. I've invested my life in this, and if necessary, I'll go down with it. And believe it or not, over the course of several years, that's exactly what happened. This self-sufficient, wildly successful millionaire with a giant house here in town, one on the coast, one in the mountains, saw everything begin to disappear. The lavish vacations were gone. The houses, gone. It hurt his marriage. It hurt his family. He told me for the first time, Mike, I've been a self-sufficient businessman. I don't even know how I'm going to pro provide for my family in the coming months. And that's when it happened. When there was no other option, James found out that indeed, Jesus was enough, and he moved from fan to follower. I could tell you about a woman named Abby, and Abby was only married for seven years, and she thought she had found the man of her dreams, but one morning he woke up and said, I don't want to be married anymore. In fact, I want to be single. Bye-bye. It took a year for that brutal divorce to unfold and become final. She had grown up in the same church her whole life. And in that particular church, some of you might have this experience. Once you got a divorce, you weren't welcome the way you were welcome before. If you were divorced in that particular church that she was in, you could still attend, but you weren't going to teach Sunday school. You weren't going to have any influence over our children. You weren't going to hold any sort of position of leadership. And she showed up at Grace Community Church one Sunday morning. This is way back in the days of the skating rink, if some of you remember those days. And she attended week in and week out, and we actually got to know her just a little bit. And after the service one day, she was speaking to Amy and me, and she said, you know, for the first time, I'm coming to church, and I feel like God's speaking to me. 
And she decided to listen. But listen, it took the brutality of a divorce. It took peering through her depression, her frustration, her anger, her feelings of abandonment for her for the first time in her life to hear the invitation of Jesus. Abby, I'm enough. Come to me if you're buried in trials and difficulty. I will give you rest. Indeed, Abby, I'm enough. And Abby moved from fan to follower. I'll tell you one more. A guy named John. John and his wife didn't attend this church. In fact, John didn't attend any church. His wife died, very surprisingly, following minor surgery. Now, their niece actually did attend Grace Community Church, and it was their niece who asked me to officiate the funeral. So in the days, you know, building up to the event... I spent time with John, and I found out he was pretty skeptical about the whole idea of Christianity, certainly skeptical about Jesus being enough. But on the day of that service, he sat on the front row, and he wouldn't take his eyes off me. I don't know the last time John had been in church, but in my estimation, it was like once a year on Mother's Day to make his wife happy. But on that particular day, when his wife lay in front of him, when he had no other option, he listened intently. And following the service, he asked if he could speak with me. And that night, when we took some food over to their house, he and I sat in his den, and John moved from fan to follower. Because at that moment, every other option was gone, and Jesus was enough. Man, I could tell you story after story after story. I could tell you about a tragic car accident involving one of our young people, a 19-year-old son taken far too soon. I could tell you about six-year-old little girls being diagnosed with leukemia and not living to see their teenage birthday. I could tell you about broken relationships, broken promises, divorce. I could tell you about the brutal uh, abandonment, a father for his family. I could tell you about one suffering after another. And in every case, that's when it occurs. That's when it happens. That's when some of those people decide, you know what? A little religion's not good enough for me anymore. Little flannel graph Jesus, that's not good enough for me anymore. And that's when hope begins to dawn. So here in John 26, that's exactly what's happening. Jesus has pulled everything off the table. He's left there by himself. He's asking, am I enough? Notice their response. Verse, end of the chapter, verse 66. Verse 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer, what? Followed him. Jesus turns to his disciples in verse 67 and he asks, you don't want to leave too, do you? Now, I don't know how he felt when he said that. I'd have been angry. I'd have been ripped off. You know, I've been doing this a long time. It still twists me up inside when people leave this church. I mean, it twists me up. I get angry. It frustrates me. I take it personally, but I don't think that's the way Jesus felt. I think Jesus was disappointed. I think he was sad. I think if the Son of God could have a broken heart, I think Jesus was brokenhearted. He turns to his closest followers. They've been with him for three years through thick and thin, and he asks, are you going to leave me too? Notice their response, verse 68. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, where shall we go? Lord, not rabbi. The fans called him rabbi. Respectful, yes. A term of endearment? Intimate? No. Simon calls him Lord, King. Lord, where shall we go? In other words, 
compared to you, what else are we going to follow? Who else are we going to follow? You have the words to eternal life. Why would we burn our energy, invest our time, expend our priority, our sense of urgency in anyone other than you? For you have the words of eternal life. Verse 69 says, we've come to believe and we know that you are the Holy One of God. We've come to believe, and I'll go ahead and say it, we know you are the Son of God. That leads me to number two. When Jesus becomes Lord, you don't want to leave. When he becomes Lord to you individually, when you recognize him as enough, not just teacher, but Lord, you don't want to leave. See, fans are going to bail on Jesus every time the teaching gets tough, right? Every time Jesus starts talking about self-sacrifice, cross-bearing, dying to self, the fans aren't interested in that. They'll bail on Jesus every time, but not the followers. Now, I don't think the fans disappear simply because it makes them uncomfortable. I think they disappear because they don't know as much as they'd like to know. They're not quite sure. Because if we knew and believed the way Peter and John and James knew and believed, I think it would radically change how we address the difficult parts of Scripture. Think about it. You might argue that somehow they knew and believed more than we ever could because they were right there with him. Let me tell you what they didn't have. They didn't have the completed inspired revelation like you have and like I have. They didn't have a 2,000 year historical, chronological timeline going back to the resurrection of God's son, Jesus Christ. So regardless, in either case, The fact is, when you know, when you believe, if we knew and we believed like the disciples, I think it would make it easier for us to accept God's teaching on dating, relationships, sexuality. I think if we knew and believed the way the disciples knew and believed, I think that that prioritized percentage of our income that's so impossible to give, I think we'd get around to giving it. That if if we knew and we believed the way John believed and, and Peter believed, I think sharing our faith with coworkers wouldn't be as difficult. Praying in public wouldn't be so tough. Speaking about our faith to people we work with wouldn't be so impossible. You see, when Jesus is Lord, you don't want to leave. That leads me to last thing. Number three, we don't know the way we would like, so we don't believe the way we should. We don't know the way we would like to know. I just wish I had more information. That's why we don't believe the way we should. It's part of human nature, I think. It's in me. It's probably in you. God, if you would just spell this out for me, if you would just make this clear, man, if you could lay in your bed tonight and stare at your ceiling when you said your prayers, an angel appeared at the foot of your bed, wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't you wake up in the morning a little more confident in your faith? If I could remove all doubt if I could give you complete, total, 100% assurance that indeed Jesus Christ was the God-man, offering himself as the eternal bread of life. Would you respond? But life's not like that. 
We want a sign. We want an unmistakable message from God. God, I'm listening. Shh, go ahead and speak. Right? But that's not the way it works, is it? That's not the way it worked for the disciples either. Every one of them, like you and me, had to choose to believe based upon not what they knew, but what they didn't know. Every one of them, in spite of not knowing everything, chose to embrace Jesus as their Messiah. And that's what it comes down to. That's what it takes to recognize Jesus as your enough and move from fan to follower. Watch this. Hebrews 9.27 says, Man is destined to die once, and after that to face the judgment. Those are the two guarantees. We will all die and we will all stand before God. When that moment comes to all of us, there's only one question that will really matter, is have you decided to follow Jesus? If I could, I would ask you that question differently because it's very personal. I wish I could come over to your house and knock on your door. Hopefully I could talk you into letting me come in and sit down for a few minutes. And I would want to sit across the kitchen table from you and look you in the eye and ask you this question. I know that when you hear me ask, have you decided to follow Jesus, many of you quickly nod your head yes and say, yeah, I'm a follower. But why do you say that? Because I'm not asking if your parents were followers. I'm not asking if you've prayed a prayer. I'm not asking if you say grace before meals or if you come to church. I'm not even asking if you believe in Jesus. I am asking, are you a follower of Jesus? Because one day there are many who say, I am a follower that will stand before God and be declared fans. I would love to have that conversation with you. John Cook would love to have that conversation with you. Jonathan Hawkins and Tyler Baker and Paulette Smith and Amy Holt would love to have that conversation with you. Our board members of Benji and Casey and, and Jonathan and Brian and others, they would love to have that conversation with you. There are people in this church who would love to have that conversation with you in your living room. The invitation from Jesus is two simple words. Follow me. And I love the image of the cross of Christ. On one side was a thief and a murderer, wasn't willing to accept who Jesus was. But on the other side, a man who is paying for his crimes, a life of selfish self-sovereignty had now caught up with him. And what happened? He turned to Jesus, dying with his last breath and said, I know who you are. And what did Jesus say to him today? You will be with me in paradise. That is the beauty, the logic, the consistency, and the love of Christianity. Follow me. Some of the favorite songs that we sing around here, one of my favorites is the one we're going to close with. Jesus paid it all. The last stanza of this song reads as follows. And when before the throne I stand in him, in Christ, complete. Jesus died my soul to save. 
my lips will still repeat. I am convinced that every one of us, the older I get and the longer I do this for my work, the experiences I have, the people I meet and see, the stories I hear, I am convinced that every one of us is going to endure that come to Jesus season in our lives. It may be the death of somebody close to you. It may be a divorce that you didn't want, didn't deserve. It may be bankruptcy. It may be illness. It may be some kind of addiction. But all of us are going to have a crystal clear invitation at one point or another to recognize whether or not Jesus is enough. He is for me. He is for me. I pray he is for you. Would you stand and let's sing this last song? If when we sing and I pray... If you'd like to have that conversation with any one of us, would you use the communication card to make sure we get your phone number, tear it off, place it in the offering containers, and we'll call you this week. Let's sing.